Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 38, the one about problem solving, creative boosters, great looking microphones and the night crawler. Let's get on with the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much for the introduction. Can I just say once more, another week, another episode, it is a pleasure to spend some time in the man who's also on the mission to keep marketing simple the man behind the marketing and finance podcast and the host of the roger vlog video series i give you monsieur roger edwards Oh, thank you so much. And and thank you so much to everybody who's watching the show or listening to the show. We really do appreciate you taking the time to watch or listen to us because let's face it, the world is inundated with content at the moment, video, audio, whatever it is. So if you're watching Two Geeks, we really do appreciate it. We've got a lot to get through this week, Pascal. So I suggest we dive straight into the news. And we begin with Tesco's, who says they will continue to put faith in marketing over the next 12 months, Roger, following a year in which the supermarket managed to increase sales, gain market share and strengthen its brand in spite of the global pandemic. The beer sector has missed an opportunity to innovate around flavour, according to Heineken's beer brand unit director, Matt Saltstein. Stats from the Wine and Spirits Association 2020 report shows beer sales fell by 10%. Aviva has restructured its marketing department with the introduction of a new role, Chief Customer and Marketing Officer, saying marketing will play a crucial role to drive future growth. Apple's voice-activated virtual assistant appears to have leaked the details of an upcoming Apple launch event. Staff at Apple blogger McRumors asked Siri when the next Apple event was scheduled to take place to be actually told it would be on the 20th of April. So funny. Well, as part of the one-brand strategy, Coca-Cola and Diet Coke packs have been revamped to bring them in line with a refreshed Coca-Cola zero-sugar design, which the company describes as integral to its marketing approach. Virgin Media is celebrating the importance of connections by joining two pizza pop-ups 400 miles apart so loved ones who have been missing each other can share a meal together. The Two Hearts Pizzeria will be open for two days from the 15th of April in South Bank, London and Castle Street in Edinburgh. Well, Hornitos Tequila teamed up with producer and screenwriter hub The Blacklist to help five emerging filmmakers turn their screenplays into short films thanks to funding and mentorship. The number of companies hiring CMOs rose in North America last year with about half of those jobs going to women. And this is according to recruiting firm Russell Reynolds Associates. So, Pascal... Great news again. I'm going to slide right back to that little announcement by Aviva. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw this piece of news and I thought I'm going to have to include this because on the one hand, it's fine. Companies do do, um, restructurings all the time. But saying marketing will play a crucial role to drive future growth. Shouldn't marketing be doing that anyway? (laughs) Well, 
Do you know, it's what it is. I've told many of my trainees and mentees, if you've chosen marketing as your profession and occupation, you're going to spend your career having to explain people what marketing does and having to promote marketing. So I think it's probably an attempt once again to make sure that marketing is not losing its place at the boardroom table. And I really like the you know addition of customer and marketing. I, I like the combination because you and I know that marketing really, really it should be obsessed with customer service. Yeah, I have to say, usually I'm not a fan of these invented titles. I think I've had a rant on the podcast before at a title which was something like Head of Marketing and Digital, which makes you think, well, isn't digital part of marketing anyway? And even though customers are effectively at the heart of marketing. You know, I always say that marketing is an obsessive understanding of your customer. But I do think that on some occasions, companies do forget that, especially financial services companies, of which Aviva is one. So on this occasion, I think I'll let them off the hook. No, and I think this news item links nicely with the last one you read about you know the vast increase in women in position yep. of uh, chief marketing officers. Actually, the chief customer marketing officer for Aviva is a woman as well, and yes. so is the chief executive officer. So now what we need, Roger, is for women working in marketing to earn as much as their male counterparts. Well, that's absolutely the next step, isn't it? And again, there's quite a few companies in that sector that aren't actually living up to that uh, that promise. Now, the other one that really interested me this week was the beer sector mm. missing out on an opportunity to innovate around flavour. And I actually was when I read that, I thought, well, hold on a second, Brewdog, which has almost like taken the craft beer market by absolute storm over the last couple of years isn't what they do all about flavor but i guess really what this art, what this news item is is referring to is the big beer brands like heineken and carlsberg who, who effectively just do what they do whilst other uh, drinks types like that have said wine and spirit i mean we see all the sorts of hundreds of different versions of gin and vodka and obviously the massive um, variety of wines but yeah i think beer hasn't really done much has it apart from the aforementioned brew dog i was surprised actually by the figure not because i've consumed a lot of beer therefore i'd assume you know the same as everybody else but we and i through the in the new segment i've read out a lot of very clever pr campaigns and stunts even from beer companies mm. so I, I just was um disappointed for them more than anything else but i do know that there's, there's also a um, big, big support of microbreweries. And I wonder whether they are uh, in part of this survey or they've been missed out because I just felt it was uh, 10%. Is that right, Roger? I just think that was like a, a bad figure for something that I understood was doing well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's probably one of those new stories you do need to dig a little bit deeper into. Uh, interesting that Apple's Siri managed to uh, give <laughs> the game away there. That's uh, that that would you could almost imagine a comedy sketch uh, being written about that. Ah, that is so good. I, I, you know, th and this idea of well, what else can I ask Siri about Apple that we should <laughs> know about? You know. Yeah, when's the next iPhone coming out, Siri? You know, when's the next <laughs> iPad coming out, Siri? And the Coke branding strategy. Now, this is really interesting. Um, when I saw the, f the visuals of these new Coke cans, I, I actually, my initial reaction was I'm not sure I like what they've done. Effectively, they've moved the Coca-Cola wording higher up the can so that the 
effectively about 50% of the top part of the can is is words and then there's almost like complete empty space below that and obviously it's red for the full coke and and silver for the the diet coke etc and my initial reaction was well, I just don't like that and funnily enough I saw on Facebook a post by a gentleman that we both know Pascal from the Upreneur Summit Philip Van Hoosen uh-huh. who's actually a design expert and he actually explained the reasoning behind this is that quite a lot of supermarkets in America, and I guess I guess in the UK as well and around the world, have had their shelving spaces redesigned to stop things falling out of shelves and to actually help them pack them quicker. And most of these have a lip at the bottom of the shelf, which is approximately two or three inches high. So literally, if you have any wording on your packaging, in the bottom uh, half in this um, example with the can size, nobody would be able to read what's on your can anyway. So part of what Coke have done is moved everything up simply because that's what supermarket shelves are like. So sometimes you realise there's a practical (laughs) application to uh, branding as well as uh, aesthetic. That is very helpful because, uh, and I would agree with you, whatever Philip says, because he's my kind of go-to authority like you for all things design. But I just took the view that maybe the marketing department got to be carried away. You know, they came up with a design for the zero sugar. And as often it happens, they just then carry over a well-established and sometimes a better superior design and they change things for, for the sake of it. And, and I was worried that they would go too far down the line. But now that you've explained that, yeah, all right. I can buy it. <laughs> it makes absolute perfect sense, doesn't it? <laughs> well, Pascal, another great selection of news items. And, you know, each week I'm really surprised, but also delighted by some of the campaigns and some of the refreshing uh, things that are coming out of some of these global brands now. But shall we move on to the content spotlight section? And in this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table an item of content. It could be a video, it could be an article, it could be a podcast, something that's caught our attention in the last week. And the best thing of all is we don't pre-warn each other what that piece of content is. So we always come into it completely unaware and ready to be surprised. So Pascal, hit me with what you've got this week. So this week, I think for the very first time for Two Geeks and Marketing Podcasts, I'm choosing a printed article. I think primarily most of our kind of findings have been digital. I think maybe once I did do review a small booklet from John Cleese, but this is from a newspaper. Now, you'd be forgiven to be surprised that I'd be using newspapers. Well, the reason is really is because I am moving house very soon, Roger, and I had the pleasure last weekend to have a big pile of newspapers and start to wrap things and put them into boxes. But then, literally, as I was looking at the newspapers in front of me, I came across this article. So you could argue it found me. Uh, of course, I got into trouble for doing less packing because I was busy then <laughs> reading the article. But I'm prepared to suffer for your benefit and that of our viewers and listeners. So the article is as follows. And by the way, I did manage to track down the online version. So there is a link in the show notes where I said tracking. I googled it, of course. But this is the title for you, Roger. How perfect all audio can create a productive and happy workforce. 
that was the title. And the reason why it stopped me on my tracks because you and I have had many conversations, and indeed with my customers, we have many conversations about the benefits of good audio to present, but also to engage an audience. Now, this article with this title was written by James Hale. And James is the director of Integrated Systems UK and Ireland for Sure, Sure, the microphone manufacturers and designers. Now, what I didn't know, and I should have known really, is that Sure have a business division whereby they can help an organization set up a complete AV system for themselves, which I think makes a lot of sense. Now, like all good article and presentation, Roger, it begins with a question. And I'm going to read this question out to you and get your reaction right now, if you don't mind. Okay. Question, how many times have you sat through a presentation that suffered from poor audio wishing you were anywhere but actually here? <laughs> well, loads of times, especially working at big corporate. I, I, and maybe I can see where you're going with this because most big corporates have loads of meeting rooms, don't they? Uh, and people do presentations in meeting rooms. Mostly those meeting rooms probably have really bad acoustics, but what they never have is actual AV systems. So what this article is done in three key segments, first one titled Impact of Audio Issues, then Sound Advice, which I think is a lovely title, and then finally an elegant solution back to sure being a solution provider as well as a product uh, provider. And what James is kind of arguing is, you know, the loss in productivity, due to the fact that people perhaps have not heard instructions or have not taken meeting notes as effectively as they could. Simply poor communication between different parties, delaying decision-making. This one I've been victim of. Time to spend rescheduling the meetings because simply you can't hear each other or you have to bring the meeting to a close. And finally, the negative impact on emotional well-being for all parties. What I think is also very interesting about this article by James is that it obviously makes the case for in-house productivity, but think about the virtual conferences, Roger. Think about training sessions, webinars, and so on, with poor audio and what it means to the audience. Again, the question, how many times have you sat through a presentation that suffered from poor audio, wishing you were anywhere but actually here? Now, the other thing that um, it shares in our first segment about impact of audio issue is a study from University of Southern California and also the Australian National University who have done the test seriously. And what they've said is when you have good audio quality, people listening to you will like you more, perceive you as being more intelligent and your content to be more important than the same presentation given with poor audio quality. It's fascinating, isn't it? But you and I have been there and we know that. I remember myself being at a conference where we moved from one speaker to the other. First speaker, the audio was fine. The second speaker, and I must you know, really ask people to stop doing this, the second speaker was using the infamous AirPods. Now, I know <laughs> that they are very expensive and I know that they look great, but they sound terrible, so stop doing it. But that's also true of TV shows and, and the like. So, of course, you know, um, Jem's going to ask people to invest in the kit. And, and I think you and I have done a fair share of talking about kit in the um, marketing and tech and apps. But also, he's saying, please also invest in the training. So whether you are the presenter or the listener, you've got to, you know, be sure that there's training. So... That to me is also an important message for all, whether you're the event organizer or whether you're the employer. 
you know, this is false economy to not invest in the training or to just let people rely on the um, kind of inbuilt microphone of the laptop. Uh, you know, you've got to do the right things. So it was just a, a lovely article. The timing was impeccable. Uh, I had it in my hands as well, which was, you know, felt a bit different and special. But for me, you know, it's back to this idea of the impact of poor audio and my view, which is when people say Zoom fatigue, they don't mean Zoom fatigue in terms of watching. They mean Zoom fatigue in terms of listening to bad audio. Uh, there's a few things that I really love there, Pascal. First of all, uh, an old boss of mine always used to say, we should never worry about bad PR for the company because ultimately it'll just be tomorrow's chip shop wrappers mm. uh, which, which is what newspapers are and you've taken it to one, one, one stage further and and actually this piece of news is actually being used to wrap up your stuff to move <laughs> house which is great I love the fact that you found something even then that's joyous that's absolutely joyous but yeah seriously you know the audio is always the most important a as a podcaster for many many years and and now as a as a as a person who enjoys video I've always remember somebody saying to me very very early on that people will forgive dodgy video much more than they will forgive poor audio you know a bit of a bit of blurriness on the screen a slightly lower definition of video is okay as long as the content is good but as soon as the audio goes bad that's when people start turning off and and i was at an online conference a few weeks ago and they were having dreadful trouble with their audio and there's one particular talk which i was really looking forward to that in the end i just had to stop watching it or listening to it because the audio was painful so really really timely reminder but let's face it everybody in this day and age where we're all glued to our screens we really shouldn't need to be reminded should we no but uh clearly we do and that's all the way to forgive me the bbc i was watching a program only two days ago where the guest was on zoom skype another and the audio on you know on the guest bar was just terrible and I can't help but think, and I think that's what James is asking us to do, just be more thoughtful, prep, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. do a dress rehearsal, do all the right things because that's nowadays, and, and forgive me, Roger, a year on from being stuck at home because of the global pandemic, we should have this sorted out by now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and get people to, you know, I, I'm involved in a few conferences where we do pre-recorded talks now, and you know, sometimes we have sent people's videos back because we ask them to record it in 1080 and it comes in standard definition. Sometimes you can get away with it if it's quite a clean if it's quite a clean video. But if it comes back with bad audio, we always go back and ask them to re-record it. Smashing. So what about you, Roger? What have you found for this week? Well, this is a delightfully simple article. It's actually l less than two pages long, so I actually worried a bit about whether it should be a content spotlight, but the message is just absolutely perfect. And it's and again, it fits all of those things that I just absolutely love about simplicity. So this article appears on the Inc. website, I-N-C, as opposed to I-N-K, and it's written by Jessica Stillman. And the headline, again, a great one, that drew me straight in. You probably completely ignore this brilliant problem-solving strategy. Now, what Jessica's talking about, and 
as I read this, I was just nodding away to it and thinking, you know, it, it fits in with what I've been teaching my customers and clients over the years. But also, you know, you see it happening all around you. Maybe I hadn't, I haven't articulated it as well as I should have been until I've read this particular article. But whenever we're presented with a problem in life, whether it's a business problem or a personal problem, it's a human reaction, according to, Jenna, uh, according to Jennifer, that we add stuff to try and come up with the solution. So she uses an example, you know, you pre- you've got this big presentation, you've got a deck of PowerPoint slides, and you don't, you, you, you're not quite sure that you've got the point made properly. Your natural inclica- inclination is add another slide, add another couple of slides. You know, if you're doing a project and you feel that the project's going off track, your natural reaction is we'll set up a separate mini oversight committee or we'll set up another project group over here to meet twice a day to keep it on track so you keep adding stuff and of course what that does is it adds complexity to whatever it is so it adds complexity to the presentation adds complexity to the uh, the project and of course we know don't we from all the conversations that you and I have had that complexity is not engaging it's not engaging for customers it's not engaging for people who are working on projects or whatever it is and eventually it causes issues and it's a genuine bias that the UK, sorry, that the human mind has. And and we're all guilty of it. And that's why, one of the reasons why doing things simply is so hard for us, because we keep wanting to add stuff. And, you know, when I was reading this article, I was thinking, even though I've spent, you know, getting on for 20 years preaching about this stuff, I'm as guilty as everybody else for adding stuff, you know, when I, when I come up against a problem. And a lot of it is being aware of it, and understanding it but the solution that jennifer's putting forward in the article and there's a few little um, ideas that she uses to illustrate it is to challenge yourself the next time you come with a pro- uh, against a problem challenge yourself to take something away rather than to add to whatever it is so you know using those examples i've got there if your PowerPoint presentation doesn't seem to be hitting the spot. Don't add slides. Take some out. If your project is off track, maybe there's too many people involved in it. Maybe you could, instead of adding a, a separate oversight committee, maybe you can take people out of the project to make it actually work better for you. And it, it, I suppose what what we're saying is that humans have got this addition bias. It's built into us, and what we've got to do is to start to train ourselves to to take on a subtraction bias. And again, you know, she she highlights people who have done this all along. Steve Jobs, obviously, from the point of view of Apple, was obsessed with cutting stuff out. Now, you could argue that since he's gone. Apple have done the opposite and started adding, 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 and maybe there's a big lesson to be learned there just from that example. But that's effectively what the article was, Pascal. You know, two pages, a couple of examples, but it absolutely nailed it for me that the human brain is wired to add when in fact sometimes simplicity comes from subtraction. And if you apply that to marketing strategy, which you and I talk about all the time, isn't one of the most important parts of strategy what what to leave out as well as 
what to leave in. And again, I think it just highlights that often we try to do too much and we miss out on the opportunities that taking stuff away can give us. I like that a lot. And you're absolutely right. I've never heard that point articulated in that manner. And I found that to be very helpful. It almost has some kinship with the video editing, which you know all too well, where it's always sometimes best to take things out than leave things in. But uh, this idea that you know we need to train ourselves where the first reaction is to, to see whether we can subtract from the equation to simplify matters. Um, I think it's, but is that you know funny how we would not do that? Because of course, seeking out simplicity is almost akin to because you don't know your stuff or you know to do things in a complicated and complex way is evidence of you know your skill set or your intelligence. And we need to completely rethink that altogether. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've worked in several companies over my career. And whilst I can think of loads and loads of examples where we launched new products or launched new systems, I'd, I'd probably struggle to think back and think, did we ever withdraw any products? Did we ever take any of any of the processes out? That's a lot harder to pinpoint the, the uh, subtraction than the additions. Yeah, smashing. Thanks very much, Roger. Yeah, great content spotlights again. So thanks for that, Pascal. Let's move on now. One of the best parts of the show each week when we talk about marketing, tech, and apps. And in this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table a marketing app or a piece of technology which can help you to grow your business, help you to become more productive, help you to become just happier. So, Pascal, what have you got on the table this week for me? Well, bear in mind the article that I mentioned to you a moment ago to our viewers and listeners about good audio. I have to talk about microphones, Roger. What about microphones that would not only sound great, but look great? Now, <laughs> I mentioned a moment ago, I shared that I'm moving house. I'm so looking forward to setting up my studio the way I want it to be. But one thing that I've been thinking about is whether the microphone should be part of the set, should be part of the staging of the composition of what people can see and therefore be put forward in, uh, in evidence and, and showcased, not to distract obviously the audience, but to be part of what you do as opposed to be just be a black blob in front of you, as is the case right now. So. I've done some research actually uh, quite some time ago. It was almost part of my Christmas wish list. I want to mention two microphones that are looking great as well as sounding great. And they really have taken design from the 1940s and 50s. So people who like that kind of a uh, retro look should be pleased about it. So the first one is called the AKG Lyra. It's a USB microphone, Roger, that is really emulating the 1940s, 50s BBC radio microphone. It's got that kind of interesting shape with uh, kind of curved angles and so on. And you can put it on the on the desk as a kind of desktop microphone. You could also mount it on the boom arm and so on. So I put the link in the show notes for people to actually look at the microphone because again, it is one that looks great and would be just lovely to see as, uh, on, via your webcam. The next one goes back further to the 1930s. If you don't know, remember watching maybe all black and white movies or indeed movies done recently that portrays that era, you had the microphone where, that was held in the middle of a circle, a metal with string um, with springs, and you've got this kind of almost star quality to it. And you have a company called Sontronics. Sontronics is a UK company, which is a nice change. 
And about two, three years ago, they created a, a microphone called Corona, which I know is an unfortunate uh, <laughs> label uh, in current times, but they, they actually have fun with it on the website. They say you not, not, not that one. And this microphone was designed in 2017, 18, so it was well before you know the crisis. Now this is an XLR a vocal microphone. Now Sontronics started life uh, as doing microphone for musicians and singers, so you can imagine that they have a wonderful pedigree to make you sound great, but also it just looks great. So for you, if you have that kind of right setting to have this retro-looking microphone, whether this is the Sontronics Corona or the AKG Lyra, it's just a wonderful addition to your own personal studio. I love that, and you know, I'm I'm quite a big fan of Art Deco, um, which I, I believe was the 20s, 30s, wasn't it? Uh, as well, so I, you know th those retro-looking um, microphones just look and obviously now sound fantastic. So, what about you, Roger? Okay, so this week I'm going to talk about apps that can help boost your creativity. Um, again, I went down a, a little bit of a rabbit hole this week. I was just thinking about, you know, somebody said in a tweet, what's the best way to um, to brainstorm? And there was a load of answers, things like using mind maps, which I'm quite keen on myself to, you know, just thinking of random words and, and, and getting associations from that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have a look to see if there are any apps that help to boost your creativity. And I come, I've come up and found two, which I really, really like. Now, the first one is called Audio Jack, and it's an app you download onto the phone, as you ex would expect. And they describe this, Pascal, as an audio-only movie. And literally, it's 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 got a load of tracks on it, some of which you have to pay for, but there are a few there are some free ones on there to give you an idea of what to expect. And some of these are two or three minutes long, some of them are a lot longer. And it's a whole series of sound effects that have been added into a story. Now obviously they whoever put this together at Audio Jack had it in mind what that story might be. So the one of the ones I listen to starts off, it, it, it sounds like you're in a field. You can hear, um, you can hear the, the birds tweeting, you can hear uh, insects buzzing and that sort of thing. And then in the background, you can hear the sound of a helicopter and the helicopter starts getting louder. But there's no, there's no words in these audios. There's just sound effects. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get your brain to fill in the pictures and as well, I guess, to fill in the words. And actually just listening to a couple of these was absolutely incredible because you, that's genuinely what you do. Your brain just starts going into overdrive, trying to come up with what's happening here. You know, is it, is it a, is it a police helicopter? Are we in Vietnam? You know, um, is it is it is it a, a rescue helicopter? All those sorts of things that come, and your brain starts to make all of these different associations. And I found it extremely immersive and extremely thought provoking. Literally within two minutes of starting to listen to it, and I've really never come across anything quite like that before. So as a prompt. Just to just to give yourself some ideas, or even just a bit of you know relaxation, I guess it's just a great way to get your brain firing all of those creativity cylinders. The second one, another app, is called Brain Sparker, 
much much more traditional this one and i think in the past uh, a lot of people used to um, spark creativity by having a pack of cards which the pack of cards may have separate words on them maybe the odd sentence maybe the odd image emoji that sort of thing well they've they've replicated this on an app and you've you've got different decks for different moods different decks for different themes and effectively you can just flick through them and it prompts you gives you ideas and beyond that they've got a website which digs a little bit deeper into different things so for example they have 10 ideas as to how to make your zoom meetings more creative by using some of their prompts and what i really liked about brainsparker as well is that it's also got a family element as well, probably mindful of the fact that a lot of um, parents have had to self-teach their children during the lockdown and, and also keep their children entertained, I guess. Quite a lot of what BrainSpark is doing is coming up with prompts to give you ideas to how to keep your kids entertained. So I, I quite like that personal approach. But yeah, two completely different approaches. The audio one probably gets my vote as being the most unique. I've never come across anything like that at all. And I think, wow, it just the sensory um, emotions that it evoked in me were really quite strong. Brilliant. Once again, Roger, I have to say both of them surprised me because we never know what we're going to present to each other each week. But it's just this idea of, you know, no matter how much one can think that's it by now, we have discovered pretty much, you know, all the tech and apps that that you should talk about. The others are going to be just mere copies. There's always something new and different. And I'm really excited about both, actually. I'm definitely going to have a look. Yeah, and, and again, we say this each week on the podcast as well, we don't collaborate in advance, <laughs> and yet your content spotlight was about sound. Your marketing tech and apps were microphones, which is about sound, and there I am coming up with something which is an mm. audio-only movie. Unbelievable. We must be telepathically linked in some way, I think, Pascal. <laughs> okay, so... As always at this part of the show, it's time to fire up the flux capacitor. It's time to set the controls of the TARDIS. We've got to head back in time to This Week in History. In 1789, three weeks into its journey from Tahiti to the West Indies, the HMS Bounty is seized in a mutiny led by Fletcher Christian, the master's mate. Captain William Bly and 18 of his loyal supporters were set adrift in a small open boat. In 1828, London Zoological Gardens, Britain's first scientific zoo, opened in Regent's Park to the members of the Zoological Society of London. In 1859, Charles Dickens, a Towns of Two Cities, is first published in weekly installments in a magazine all the year round. In 1887, George Thomas Morton performed the first US operation to remove an appendix, an appendectomy, saving the life of a 26-year-old man who had appendicitis. In 1952, Roger, Mr. Potato Head is the very first toy to be advertised on television using the very new technique of 30-second TV commercials. In 1986, Soviet TV news programme Verima announces a nuclear accident at Chernobyl Nuclear Power Station two days after the event happened. In 2003, Apple launches the iTunes stores, giving users the ability to purchase and download music from the internet directly to their iTunes library. Seven years later, 2010, the store sold its 10 billionth song. 
and in 2019 TV series Game of Thrones episode The Long Night debuts and it was the longest battle ever screened, nearly 80 minutes, which was even surpassing the Lord of the Rings Battle of Helm's Deep, which was 44 minutes. Wow. So a load of great news items there as well. And I want to go back to that one in 1789, just to talk a little bit about the mutiny on the bounty. This is one of my favourite historical stories, Pascal. Um, and, and for trivia lovers, it's been filmed three times, at least three times as far as I can remember. 1935, Charles Lawton and Errol Flynn. Mm-hmm. And in 1962, Trevor Howard and Marlon Brando. And in 1980, or around about 1980, Anthony Hopkins and Mel Gibson. And it, it's it's just one of those stories which actually happened but it, you could you could almost not make it up it's such a good story if you challenged a scriptwriter go into into maritime history and write me a screenplay they would be hard pressed to come up with a story like this i mean basically the bounty left england to go to the uh, to tahiti to pick up breadfruits and take those breadfruits to jamaica and what happened, first of all, is they tried to circumnavigate the world the opposite direction than everybody had done before. So that was what they tried to do. But it was the storms and the sea and the weather was just so bad that after about six weeks of trying, the boat was just flattened and they had to repair it and effectively go the other way. So that that was exciting for a start. Then they arrive in Tahiti and find that they, because of the delay, they had to say five months. Uh, and imagine after being at sea for a year in a place like Tahiti and all of the people started living on the island, tropical paradise, fell in love with some of the, the local natives, got married, whatever it was. And then they had to get back on the boat to go to Jamaica who wouldn't have uh, felt imprisoned and um, harshly treated by the captain after that? And so they staged this mutiny, and they put the captain in the boat, and then the the, <laughs> the captain actually manages, with eighteen people in the in the launch, so a little boat manages to uh, navigate nearly four thousand miles across the Great Barrier Reef in the Pacific uh, Pacific Ocean, uh, the South Pacific Ocean, to get back to civilization whilst the mutineers go off and find an island called Pitcairn to, to, to settle on. I mean, it's just a, an incredible story that uh, just stands the test of time. And I've read l- quite a lot of books on this, and I've watched each of the films, some of which are, are less accurate than others. I think the, the Mel Gibson, uh, Anthony Hopkins, is the most historically accurate. But wow, when this popped up, I thought, I'm just going to have to have a little bo- monologue about the mutiny on the bounty. No, and do you know what's interesting is, originally, uh, when I saw the movies, particularly uh, uh, as a young lad, I thought it was fiction work, for sure. And then my dad corrected me, saying, oh, this really happened. But you can really understand he almost has you know some kind of a link and analogy with what we're going through with lockdown in you know, the society yes. of I mean, Tahiti for the French nation. It's paradise. Or suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, you dream saying, I save money and then I'll have a holiday in Tahiti because of where, where it is. And yeah, you're right. I think the version with um, Mel Gibson and, and um, Organist Steam, who's the other actor, please. Anthony um, Hopkins. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, it's probably the, the closest to reality, but I'm very fond of the one with Marlon Brando as well, I must say. 
Yes, although he did have a bit of a silly accent, if yeah. I remember rightly. It's probably, it's probably a version of the film I've seen the least. Um, I'll have to go back and have a look at that. Mr. Potato Head, the very first toy advertised on TV. I didn't know that. 52, yes. Yeah. So just after the Second yeah. World War, where disposable income became a thing, and uh, obviously young children were being, I suppose you could argue, targeted via, via their parents. But uh, it just, you know, it makes you think. So that's, um, you know, a long time ago now. And um, well, I can I just say that adverts have not improved with time. <laughs> that's absolutely right. And I believe now, because because it's not politically correct to call Mr. Potato Head Mr. Potato Head, I'm sure I've read somewhere that it's now just Potato Head or something like that. So it's not Mr. Potato Head and there's no Mrs. Potato Head. Don't know whether that means they've got to go back and retcon the Toy Story movies, but hey. Yeah, well, <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> let's say about it. Can I just mention quickly, Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. I was mm. forced to read the book when I was at university in Bordeaux. Yes. I remember this being a very big book. And I'm thinking weekly installments must have taken a very long time to get, or it was just maybe extracts. And uh, because, I mean, I don't know how many, I, I would say it's several hundred pages for sure of the book. So that magazine all the year round must have been on all for at least a year, if not longer. Absolutely. I mean, it, actually, Tale of Two Cities is, again, it's one of my favourite old books. Uh, I'm not a massive fan of Charles Dickens, I have to say. I do find oh, right, right. Mo most of his books I've not, never really never really gelled with you know I, I gave up on David Copperfield I don't got, I didn't get all the way through Oliver Twist but Tale of Two Cities it, it, it's again it's it's such an incredible story and, and obviously in London in Paris and, and and set against the backdrop of the French Revolution but it's probably also one of those books that most of us can quote the first line and the last line, because of, they often appear in in quizzes or on mm. Richard uh, Richard's um, <laughs> House of Games, so that the opening line is "It was the best of times, it was the worst of times," and the the final line is um, "It's a far far better thing than I do than I've ever done. It's a far greater rest than I've." that I go to than I've ever known. And, I, and I've actually quoted that without having it written in front of me on the screen, just, just to reassure people that I genuinely do know those quotes. But it, it is, and again, that's a, that's a book that's been filmed and many times mm. and turned into many TV series as well. Can we quickly mention, obviously, the, the iTunes or the item we read about it, mm. the iTunes. So the 10th billion song, I had to look it up because I couldn't resist, uh, was Johnny Cash. Guess things happen that way, which I think is something. There's a bit of poetry. There was a an old singer songwriter as opposed to a new one. But since then, on average, I think the um, you know every year there is about 10 million songs being downloaded from from the iTunes Store, which is quite a number, isn't it? Oh, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And and again, I know that there's all sorts of wranglings over the years about the royalties that get paid to the artists and whether that's fair. But, you know, you just think the sheer number is astonishing. And, and maybe the percentage that the artists receive is is quite low. But that a very low figure times by 10 billion is, is quite a big figure, I would have thought. Mm. And Game of Thrones... That episode was very thrilling, very well done, but 
garnered quite a bit of controversy when it was shown first for being very very dark as in it happened at night and it was maybe it was deliberately shot in almost complete darkness to hide some of the uh, special effects perhaps but i remember watching it probably about 2 a.m because that was the last series and we was we just had to watch the series as it was broadcast first uh, in in parallel with the united states and i do remember watching that and thinking god i can't really tell what's going on here i'm gonna to have to watch it on blu-ray later on to make sure that i can pick out the details but what is interesting is this uh news item made mainstream news so normally when you get of thrones and you know fighting and gore and all that kind of things most media would just not bother covering it but because it such an achievement which is why it's worthy of being part of this week in history that all media from radio tv print and more just said you know this is an exceptional achievement for a tv series and it's a battle that goes on forever you really get, get a sense of the dread and and how fearsome it is and worthy of, of watching you right more, more than once. But I didn't realize, because I don't suppose you, you keep track of time when you're just caught by the story. But it was nearly twice as long as Helm's Deep, which is quite a battle in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, what isn't included in the, in the news this week, but uh, could have been, is that it's actually 10 years this week since the very first episode of Game of Thrones wow. was broadcast. And of course, it changed TV storytelling and tv series forever you know almost cinematic in their absolute uh, splendor so great great always great to go back and look at the past because the past shapes the present but it is time to come back to the present and move on to our creator shout out section <music> And in this part of the show, Pascal and I shout out the work of our favourite creators. Those creators are usually people that are within our local network. Sometimes we shout out to people who are outside of our local network. But, Pascal, who have you got in your sights this week? So this week I've got someone who is outside of my network, although there is a connection of sort. You remember that I've been playing a lot with Ecamm Live, the live streaming solution for Mac users. And as such, I am a member of the Ecamm Live community. It's a wonderful Facebook group full of support and people that can really help each other out. And there's a lady as part of the group called Gillian Roberts-Marine, who is the marketing director of Marlboro Economic Development Corporation in the US. Now, I had to look it up. Marlboro is a city part of Middlesex County in Massachusetts. And I have to say, having done quite a bit of research, it looks and sounds like a really lovely place, Roger. Another part of the world that I know really well, but uh, what they do there is essentially support local businesses and make sure that you know they are as successful as can be. Now, Gillian is the producer of a new live series, live streaming series called Inside the Industry. And the reason I chose her work is twofold. To begin with, wow, you should really watch um, the video that I put the link to in terms of how to do a panel discussion using live streaming solutions. Now, in this case, I'm, I'm guessing she's used Ecamm, but I would imagine that the same is possible with other live streaming software. But it was just a lovely way to see 
someone working hard, Roger, and to make a panel discussion interesting visually, but also it sounded great. A moment ago, we mentioned about this and the use of what ECAM can do. But the other reason I wanted to mention Jillian is because she was complimented by the members of the ECAM Live Facebook group for the quality of the backdrops. Now, all of the panelists were using the green screen technique that we know. But the backdrop looked stunning. It was very professional. You know, the colors were just very, very good. And she just explained that there were static graphics that she had pulled together for the purpose of the streaming. And she happily shared those files. So not only did she produce a great show, but in spirit of what it's like to be part of a community that support other content creators, she put a link to a Google Drive where you can download the PNG files if you want to use a similar kind of gradient, um, solid color background. So it looks as though you are you have a wall like I have with a spotlight behind you that makes it very professional because you'll agree that very often you and I see people using green screen just very badly and it just you know kind of jars. So once again, Julian, well done for producing an amazing looking live streaming show, but also thank you for your general and sharing your files. I, you know, I, I really love it when people do things like this. And, and I suppose it's the geek in me, and, and, and you'll be the same. But when I watch a podcast, when I watch a, a video series now, or even listen to a podcast, whatever it might be, not only am I devouring the content... I'm also watching at, watching to learn from how they've done something from a technical point of view, from a video point of view or a sound production point of view. And it's great when the two come together, like in this case. Yeah. What about yourself then? Who's in the spotlight? Okay. So this week I'm giving a shout out to a, an old friend of mine, a guy called Theo Priestley. Now, Theo lives in Edinburgh. I've known him for quite a few years now because we used to work in the same big corporate many, many years ago, uh, one of those startup corporates, which was actually quite exciting. Theo also is a cat lover, and he has several, I think he has at least three cats, two of which are Maine Coons, and of course one of uh, our cat, Lottie, is, is a Maine Coon as well, so we share that sort of feline empathy. But the shout-out is really because Theo has just published a book. Now, it's co-authored with a lady called Bronwyn Williams, and the title of the book is The Future Starts Now, and the byline is Expert Insights into the Future of Business, Technology, and Society. Now, Theo has always been outspoken about the future of business, the future of technology, and the future of society. He calls himself a futurist, and a lot of people call themselves futurists, but this guy really has made it his own and over the years I've I've followed him on Twitter I've I've watched some of his talks I've read some of the articles that he's written he's written in um, Forbes and all of those sorts of places and he's he's always he's always keen to call out tech bullshit he's always keen to to call out people who just get it wrong about the way society is going and what he's done with his co-author is they've collected together a whole series of essays from luminaries and futurists and it's really thought-provoking and it's as hard edged as some of the uh, of the content that uh, that theo's put out over the years it's also worth uh, if you if you if you like the sound of the book by that but it's also worth seeking out a tedx talk that theo did so only a 10 minute talk and it's called would you follow a robot leader and that is a great tedx talk that's well worth investing 10 minutes of your time 
Super. Well, both for Gillian and Theo, thank you again for the inspiration and for the hard work. Pascal, we are at that point again. Always the most exciting part of the show from my point of view. Are you ready for film marketing? So, Pascal, we've reviewed 37 films so far on Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. And, of course, like Mutiny on the Bounty today, we've also talked about many other films (laughs) as well. Most of the time, though, the films that we choose usually have a hero that goes on a hero's journey of sorts. But today's film, the title character, the head character in this film, is a really nasty, despicable, reprehensible individual. Yeah, even just the title of the film, Nightcrawler, it's not particularly appealing or doesn't suggest you know a, a story that uh, well, we're going to perhaps relate necessarily to the, the many characters so yeah it was a challenge thank you very much for setting that up and uh, let's see what we make of it yeah now we both watched the film this week in fact i think it was last night and we, we were texting each other to say oh there, there we go there, there it started there it's finished nightcrawler set in los angeles and it tells the story of This guy who's basically a sociopath, um, you know, not a nice guy at all, uh, obviously trying to uh, find something to do with his life. And he witnesses um, a film camera crew effectively taking shots at uh, an accident on the freeway. And this camera crew is taking quite graphical shots of um, injured people and then selling the footage onto the local TV channels. So effectively, he buys a camera and buys a police scanner radio and goes out night crawling in LA, effectively trying to find victims of shootings, robberies, car accidents, whatever it might be, to shoot this footage and then sell it to the um to the the tv stations now th- th- that concept alone almost makes my skin crawl i don't know about night crawler but <laughs> skin skin crawling you know the fact that the sort of people would do that you know and there are there are certain examples where he could have helped the people at the scene of the accident um before the um police and the ambulances arrive but in fact in what he does is he just chooses to shoot the film because that will get him um, a bigger fee from the tv that is just reprehensible in itself but the actual character you know the way he goes through he becomes absolutely obsessed with this job and and making it better and getting more money and you almost don't want to like the film because of that basic premise but it does actually suck you in and before you know it you know the two hours have passed uh, what did you think about him i didn't like the character at all um i was looking for a conclusion we'll come to that but you know the third act but yeah. for me it was just compelling to watch because it was beautifully filmed mostly yeah. at night i don't think there's a lot yeah. of um, scenes taking place during the daytime you've got to obviously praise uh, the writer director for a superb job of creating an, a world and that i didn't know so well in you know, this idea of independent news channels cable channels and the likes buying footage from pretty much freelancers 
And for the character played by Jay Gyllenhaal to be this almost golem, bringing the worst of business marketing, uh, you know, this generation of people who believe in themselves. He, he spent the most of the movie reciting uh, passages from management books, which frankly makes him, him even more robotic and more of a sociopath than, than ever before. And it's just kind of um, take us on this journey. And, and the feelings that I had watching Nightcrawler reminded me of the feelings I had watching American Psycho with Kristen Bell or the series Sons of Anarchy where you kind of go, I really, really don't like you, but somehow I'm going to keep watching to see where this goes. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that that bit of where he's effectively re reciting passages out of management speak. Um, booked but that you know it's absolutely obvious to somebody like me who you know has rebelled against management <laughs> speak that that's what was actually happening and there are there's the one particular scene where he gives his um his employee almost like an appraisal doesn't he a, a discussion oh yeah and the words they use oh yeah. and you, you just want to cringe he says he says something like and we're looking forward to your creative input in the future and you think oh people don't talk like that you know they they you definitely have read that in a book but i actually have a story about nightcrawler pascal um my sister my elder sister lives in los angeles uh, to be precise she lives in venice beach where quite a lot of this film was actually filmed that's right now i was over in um, los angeles in 2013 uh, which was the year before this was this film came out and one day we were walking along the promenade at Venice Beach. Now, I mean, if you've ever been to Venice Beach, I mean, it's a fantastic sandy beach, but it's also uh, a mass of tattoo parlours and, and gymnasiums, some of which, one's called Muscle Beach, is actually out in the open air, and you can see people working out, pumping weights, etc., etc. There's, there's an incredibly weird vibe to it. And one day, we were walking along the front there, and we saw this big red car, uh, the Dodge Challenger, surrounded by all the filmmaking accoutrements. So we had the lights, you know, those silvery discs that they always used to use to bounce the light around, loads of people running around and this, that and the other. And we sort of stood around for five, ten minutes to see if anything was happening. There were no actors there. It was just this big red car. Uh, and there was there was all sorts of prep going on. I remember hearing the guy said that the, they're not actually getting the actors in at any point in the near future. So guys, don't bother hanging around. You know, come back in a couple of hours. So we went off and we never thought anything of it. And then, a year or so later, when my wife and I first watched Nightcrawler, we had no idea. And then there was that scene with the red car that was being shot that day. And, and we almost saw, both looked at each other at the same time. <laughs> hey, do you remember that? That was when we were in, that day we were walking along the front at Venice. That was the car. Uh, what is interesting is, so I was in Los Angeles, I think a year just before you. So we missed each other by a year when I went to the American film market. I, I need to check my diary again. And I never had the time to go into Los Angeles, per se, not the city center itself. I spent most of my time in Santa Monica, where the uh -huh. uh, film market was taking place. And it was just 10 days packed with um, meetings, screenings, and so on. So really, I didn't have much to do the much of the touristy bit, apart from going to the Sony studios and Warner Brothers studios. And 
I remember, you know, at the time, people were there was murmurs about a film like that, but not, nothing was mentioned in terms of the um, of the title and so on. So I, I was quite surprised because actually the first time I saw um, And Watch, which also stars Jay Gyllenhaal, I thought that mm. was it. But mm. actually, not. Mm. It was that Nightcrawler that people were talking about at, at the time. Yeah, fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So, so it's not often you get a film where the where the actual the hero in inverted commas of the film is is such a despicable individual. <laughs> uh, and and and, the, and if, effectively by the end of the film, you know, he, he you know doesn't get his comeuppance or anything. You know, the implication is that by the end of the film, he's actually doing pretty much pretty all right for himself. And that's what's fascinating, and that's where, of course, the movie is true to this kind of um, indie roots where they don't mm. have to follow the rules or the mm. filmmaking you know filmmaking handbook where you have to have the three acts and the hero journey and so on so it's mm. kind of doing what what he wants but it tells the story really well and i really want our viewers and listeners to understand this is a great movie to watch particularly if you appreciate a uh, filmmaking but it's kind of looking at this idea of you know what would happen if a sociopath literally learned the skills from others but then had no boundaries and went all the way to where others would not want to go. So, uh, you know, people say it's, it's that kind of ultimate convergence between uh, business, marketing, and entrepreneurship, but the evil side of it. So we have, for example, Bill Paxton, one of my yeah. kind of all-time favorites. I just wish it was a movie longer. Well, Bill is becomes a competitor to Lou Bloom, played by, by Jay Gyllenhaal. And as is often the case in business, Bill Paxton's character approaches Lou Bloom to offer him a job, to take him out of the equation. Lou Bloom uh, turns down the, the position, but instead of essentially dealing with the competition in a semi-professional way, he's going to go as far as sabotaging the van Bill, owned by Bill Paxton, causing an accident that he's going to film and so on. He's going to manipulate people. He's going to blackmail people. He's going to do everything that you shouldn't do in business to get to where he wants because of this kind of one commitment to, I believe in myself, I'm all about, you know, I'm for that generation of self-entitlement and I will get what I want no matter the, the means to, to do so. Yeah, and one of the things that again really struck me about watching this film again last night was the, the hints that it gives you about the society that we live in mm. now. I mean, we all carry around a mobile phone studio now. Our mobile phone is a studio, camera, audio, etc. And you do hear stories of things like car accidents and shootings where instead of helping, people are stood there shooting the footage on their phones. Maybe not to sell to TV channels, but I'm sure some people do, but even just to share with their friends, which is a bit nightcrawlery as well. Um, and, and even, you know, the HAPS TV app, which we've talked about very affectionately here on the podcast many times, is built around this idea of encouraging people to be film journalists and getting out there and filming stuff that's going on. And like and while you'd like to think that people would be, you know, filming things that can be celebrated, beautiful streets, beautiful buildings, beautiful events, whatever it might be, you always know that there will be a dark side to it, which is what's highlighted here in the Nightcrawler film. 
What is interesting about this movie is, you know, when you tell a story, Roger, you know that um, all too well, you have to give the audience a sense of space and time. Yeah. And what I find fascinating about this movie is you can't quite tell when, as in in terms of a year, it's taking place. It's kind of ambiguous. You know, is it 2014 the year was made? Is it a bit earlier? Mm. Is it a bit later? Mm. I think it's very, very interesting. So therefore, a movie that's not going to age rapidly, I reckon yeah. people would be celebrating its 10th, 20th, 30th anniversary very well. Because let's be very clear, as much as we are uh, essentially saying the, the main character is not likable, this is a very likable uh, bit of filmmaking. And indeed, the critics have been very, very pleased with it. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. So, Pascal, marketing-wise, mm. was the marketing as cringe-inducing as the actual uh, central character? Well, happily not. So, the first thing that uh, part of you know what we want to do with this segment, Roger, is to look at the marketing and, and derive lessons for all of us content creators. And so typical of indie filmmakers, you know, I love this story where the filmmakers went to the Cannes Festival in 2014 with an unfinished movie. And literally, as you know, distribution companies were fighting with themselves to get the rights to that. So lesson number one, learn from the Nightcrawler film producers. <laughs> you don't have to have a perfect finished product to start to talk about it and get people excited about it. That's, that's really fun. That's really fun. And there was some quite interesting uh, video stuff going on as well, wasn't there? Didn't Just at the least. Didn't Lou, didn't Lou put together a video resume that they actually put out on YouTube and LinkedIn? Yes, nearly watched by one million people. The character, Jake Gyllenhaal, in character, put a video out looking for a job, but it was really in character. I would argue his video resume and essentially call for a job is better than the official trailer. <laughs> yeah, and again, it, it has that so that blend of management speak mumbo jumbo and gobbledygook, <laughs> you know, business strategy and, and entrepreneurship and all of that sort of stuff woven into it. And you know, as reprehensible as the character is, he does, you know, Gillen Cole does a great job enacting that that part. They didn't stop there, though, Roger. We discovered through research that Lou Bloom. The CEO of um, is it called News Video Productions? That it's something called? like that. Yeah, yeah News yeah. Production uh, Video Production News VPN. Remember, it was a strange acronym. Also has and still has to this day a LinkedIn profile. Yes, I mean that's genius as well, isn't it? Absolute genius. So it also at the time had a Twitter account, but that's gone and so on. But the LinkedIn profile is still there. I checked it. I must confess, <laughs> I did not send a connection request. And I was thinking only because actually I don't like you very much. Uh, and, and even though you're a fictional character, I just don't want to be connected with you. But if you look at the profile, there's not much going on, but the same kind of marketing speak in terms of his description. But uh, he has LinkedIn skills, Roger. As follows, entrepreneurship, business development, business strategy, <laughs> short composition, and video editing. It would be interesting to see what would happen if you did send him a connection request and he actually replied. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go then. But isn't that fascinating that after watching the film, I didn't want to connect with him because you know, my mind was fly saying, no, 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 it's not the kind of guy you want to have around. 
<laughs> yeah, th- th- there's always that sort of, you know, you, you'll you'll see telephone numbers on the side of um, buildings in films. And sometimes, I mean, maybe again, it's the geek in me. Like, oh, I wonder what would happen if I phoned that number. And sometimes the filmmakers are actually clever enough to have some sort of recorded message to you know to talk to if you do phone that number and and this again it's just something like that isn't it it's just so in character with that you know you would know that this person would put together a linkedin profile that probably exaggerates <laughs> his skills and exaggerates um, what he can do but it's so in character that it's actual genius that they did this absolutely so t- to me it's funny because yes they've gone ahead of course they have the poster of course they have the teaser trailer the trailer and everything else but it's those little kind of uh, indie filmmakers move like the youtube video like the linkedin profile twitter at the time that i think make all the difference of course they this movie was chosen by many many festivals indeed and i think very smartly it was released internationally on halloween which i think was also a smart movie it doesn't qualify as a horror film by any stretch but i think it belongs in a in agence for sure i guess the title nightcrawler some people may have been expecting some sort of monster <laughs> crawling around the streets of uh, Los Angeles, but actually that's exactly what it is. He is a monster, and he might be driving a very um, uh, interesting big red car around the streets of Los Angeles, but he is he is a monster. So, yeah, um, a great film, uh, and I really enjoyed it, even though I disliked the character thoroughly yeah if i may actually i'm going to quote the um the ceo of open road one of the distributors and financiers of the movie to kind of wrap up the film marketing bit and then i've got a question for you so it was quoted to say that even though the you know they enjoyed you know the success of the movie they they were pleased because this qualifies as a low budget films for kind of uh, hollywood standards this was in the realms of eight million dollars which i know they're a lot of money but actually most movies are 25 million onwards really to qualify so the um the ceo of open road basically said you know we are hoping for the best but we're not counting on anything from anyone and this lesson about you've got to create your own luck so you've gone ahead and produced a film you've gone ahead and recorded the podcast wrote the article wrote the book You've got to hope for the best, but you count. You do not count on anyone f- to help. You've got to create your own luck and go out there. And that's what I think yeah. with the YouTube videos, the LinkedIn profile, the Twitter account, the festivals, the interviews, and so on. That's what they did. Absolutely, no, I love that. I absolutely love that. And it, uh, the, sorry, Roger. So there's a moment in a film where he goes ahead. Where he's stolen a bike, isn't he? And with the yeah. money, he buys his first camera, which is quite pitiful. So I must confess that I burst into laughter because I remember when I, bu- I bought my first camera, I was so pleased, but it wasn't very good either. What was your very first video camera, Roger, out of interest? Wow, that's an incredibly good question. Um, I think I think it was a Philips um I don't know whether you could even call it a camcorder. It was probably about that big. And my father, my father was actually really quite into tech. We we got a, a VHS videotape recorder very early on, uh, and he he was absolutely obsessed with video. So he bought this Philips thing, and you know the cassettes were not quite as big as VHS, but they were really significant. So I. I 
I can remember well early in my career when I'd, I'd only been working for a, a couple of years. So this is maybe, I don't know, something like 1986. No, about 1988. And I remember that the training manager at the business that I was working at wanted to film some sales guys uh, practicing their sort of conversations with potential customers. And th- there was talk of actually hiring a camera and bringing it in and, and doing the filming. And I sort of put my hand up and said, well, my dad's got a camera. I'm sure he'll let me bring it in, which he did. And, of course, I was the hero of, of the um, sales team for weeks after that because I saved them a fortune. And, of course, I'd, you know, we just pointed it and, and let them get on with it. But, that, yeah, so it was a Philips something. <laughs> Yeah, my f- first one I had was a Panasonic, I think. Uh, you still had to use a Super 8 cassette, which is also interesting in, in the movie. They seem to be using cassettes, don't they, to, yeah. and, and still kind of big, chunky, portable hard drive, which is why I, I was interested about the timing and when this movie is taking place. So thanks again, Roger, for choosing Nightcrawler. Again, something that had been on my Amazon Prime watch list for a long time and we just needed to kind of look at it and enjoy looking at the marketing as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody. We've come to the end of another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. I knew that today's episode was going to be full of really interesting stuff, talking about Mutiny on the Bounty, made me happy and talking about Nightcrawler despite that reprehensible character (laughs) is a great movie so thank you for watching thank you for listening if you've got any comments or suggestions just leave the comments or suggestions below the video or wherever you receive your podcasts and until the next episode please make sure that you go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni (laughs) 